Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations proudly present Dime Store Radio Theater! And now that it is officially December, Dime Store Radio Theater is flipping over to holiday programming to help keep you in the spirit all month long. Dime Store Radio Theater goes to the movies this year with feature presentations each week offering romance, adventure, and seasonal tidings that will make you feel like you've been under the mistletoe all night long. This time of year is a terrifying and lonely torment on our minds and souls, so let Dime Store Radio Theater be the guiding light this holiday with simple distractions to help pass the time. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me Meet Me in St. Louis by the Lux Radio Theater. Lux presents Hollywood. Lever Brothers Company brings you the Lux Radio Theater, starring Judy Garland, Margaret O'Brien, and Tom Drake in Meet Me in St. Louis. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer... Mr. William Keeley. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. The theme song of tonight's play is the title of Metro-Golden-Mare's screen hit, Meet Me in St. Louis, based on the novel of the same name by Sally Benson, currently playing in theaters all over the country. The title refers, of course, to the World's Fair in St. Louis in 1904. Ten million people attended it, but twice as many people in our listening audience will be going there tonight with three of Hollywood's most charming stars, Judy Garland, Margaret O'Brien, and Tom Drake. They take you back to an era of nostalgic charm in a warm and haunting story of romance. Lux Radio Theater is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. During the holiday season, we like to give the staff here in the Lava Lamp Lounge some much-needed time off. And with only 19 shopping days left until the big day later this month, we would like to offer this simple reminder in lieu of the usual nonsense we often provide. Shop local. Your chosen family is more important than anything else. Don't scrimp on the sides, pies, or extra LPs, and let Sheena's Jungle Room be your guide through the darkest days to something we can all enjoy in the following year. From all of us here at Dime Store Radio Theater, Sappy Hollandaise. And now, we return you to Lux Radio Theater, here on Dime Store Radio Theater. On to Act One of Meet Me in St. Louis, starring Judy Garland as Esther, Margaret O'Brien as Tootie, and Tom Drake as John, with Gail Gordon as Alonzo. In the year 1903, there lived in the city of St. Louis a family named Smith. There were Mr. and Mrs. Alonzo Smith and Grandpa Smith. There were also two daughters and a son, Rose, Esther, and Lonnie. Oh, yes, and another daughter, Tootie, aged seven who at this moment perches next to Mr. Costello on Mr. Costello's ice wagon. My goodness, Tootie, at five o'clock. Giddy up, be dressed. Oh, how's your doll feeling now, Tootie? Any better? Oh, no. 
poor Margaretha. I've never seen her look so pale. Mm, probably the heat. Been awful hot today. I doubt very much if Margaretha will live through the night. She has four fatal diseases. Mm, as rule, only takes one. She's going to have a beautiful funeral in a cigar box my papa gave me, all wrapped up in silver paper. Mm, that's the way to go if you got to go. Oh, she's got to go. How's Beatrice feeling? Oh, Beatrice don't mind the heat. Why, she's the strongest horse in St. Louis. Excuse me, Mr. Costello, but it's pronounced St. Louis. Mm, that's funny. Now you take that their new song. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis, meet me. Oh, well, that's different. We sing that song all the time in our house. My sister Esther and my sister Rose and Grandpa and everybody. Well, St. Louis to St. Louis, it's still a grand old town. It's not a town, Mr. Costello. It's a city, and it's the only city that's going to have a World's Fair. Gosh, wasn't I lucky to be born in my favorite city? You sure were, honey. So was I, and so was Beatrice. Is that right, Beatrice? Come on, gal. Giddy up. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis, meet me at the fair. Don't tell me the lights are shining any place but there. We will dance the hoochie-coochie, you will be my tootsie-wootsie. If you will meet me in St. Louis, Louis, meet me. Rose and sing. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis, meet me at the fair. Don't tell me the lights are shining any place but there. Oh, hello, Papa. Did you just come home, Papa? The fair won't open for months, but that's all everybody talks about or sings about. Where's Mama? Here I am, dear. Well, did you have a nice day, Alonzo? I had a terrible day, Anna. I lost the case. Oh, dear. Oh, well, Papa, if losing a case depresses you so, why don't you give up law and go into some other business? All right, Esther, I will. Beginning tomorrow, I intend to play first base for the Baltimore Orioles. Right now, I'm going to soak in a cool bath for one solid hour. Oh, but that's impossible, Papa. Katie's serving dinner in five minutes. Five minutes? Alonzo, we, we planned on eating an hour earlier tonight. I'm taking a bath! Oh, Rose, dear, I'm so oh, sorry. But it's nothing to upset the entire household about. Warren Sheffield, a Yale man, is going to telephone you at 6.30, and you say it's nothing. Rose, the telephone's in the dining room. You certainly don't want the whole family sitting there drinking in every word when a man proposes long distance. I don't see why you assume Warren is going to propose to me. He's calling from New York. Do you know what that costs? Now, I think that's just about enough of this. Now, where's Tootie? Oh, she's delivering ice with Mr. Costello. No, she came back a few minutes ago. She's in the backyard burying her doll. Well, call her in and see that she gets washed. And Lonnie. Lonnie! Now, don't you worry, Rose, dear. Everything will work out all right. Mama, it's 6.30 and Papa isn't down yet. He will be. Tootie! Grandpa! Lonnie, come on, dinner! Has he telephoned yet, Rose? Grandpa, I'm not in the least concerned whether Mr. Sheffield calls or not. I suppose Warren's too young, huh? Every fella I introduce her to is too young. Now listen, children, your father will be right down. If we eat dinner quickly, we may be finished, but the time... Oh, now I remember. Now I remember where I left my other roller skate. On the staircase. I hope I haven't held you up. I was just taking a little ride before dinner. <laughs> Tootie, is this your roller skate? Yes, Papa. Thank you. You're welcome. And remind me to spank you after dinner. Yes, Papa. Ah, soup. Don't blame me if it's cold, Mr. Smith. Oh, Katie. So is the corned beef. No, 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 it's fine, delicious. 
Well, what's the matter with everybody? Eat your soup. Oh, 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 Rose, let me get it. Telephone, telephone. What are you all jumping for? Sit still. I'll answer it. I'll die. I'll simply die. Hello? What? New York? No, I'm not calling New York. What? Hello? 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 Anna? I'm going to have that instrument of torture ripped out of this home. Oh, Alonzo, every telephone call's not for you, dear. Rose is crying. Well, what's the matter with you? <laughs> oh, it's nothing, Papa. You've just ruined Rose's chances to get married, that's all. What did you say? That was Warren Sheffield calling long distance to propose. Oh, I see. Tootie, did you know there was a long distance call coming to this house? You know what, Papa? The Iceman saw a drunk who get shot yesterday and blood spurted out three feet Answer and... yes or no. Yes. Lon? Grandpa? Anna? Well, and just when was I voted out of this family? Oh, Alonzo, really now that... My eldest daughter is practically on her honeymoon and everybody in St. Louis knows about it but me. Well, from now on, I'll handle all telephone calls to this house. But, Papa... Nobody answers the phone but me. But I. Thank you. Rose, answer the telephone. Thank you, Papa. Hello, Warren? How are you? Oh, I'm fine, Rose. How St. Louis? What did you say? I said, how St. Louis? Oh, it's fine. Uh, fine. Uh, can you hear me? Oh, yes, I can hear you the fine. The whole neighborhood can hear you. Well, uh... What did you say, Warren? Nothing, uh, nothing. I was waiting for you to say something. Oh. Uh, Rose, I... I hope you won't misunderstand what I'm going to tell you. Yes? Well, I... I don't think you should mention this call to your family. Why not? Well, because there'd be H to pay if my family ever found out I called you long distance. Oh, oh he said there'd be H. My family's here and they don't think anything of it. Well, I'd better not waste any more of your time or money. Rose, I've still got 35 Never seconds. Never mind. Well, Rose, I'll... I'll write to you as soon as I hang up. Well, that'll be very nice. Goodbye, Warren. Well, that's the darndest proposal I ever heard. Well, of all things, he talks about the weather. Well, I'll bet there isn't another girl in St. Louis who's had a Yale man call her long distance just to inquire about her health. If, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to be excused. A Yale man, eh, Lonnie? Yes, Papa. That settles it. You're going to Princeton. It's nice just sitting on the front porch, isn't it, Rose? I just love a summer night. Esther wasn't that silly of me running away from the dinner table. Oh, Rose, I wish I had your, your savoir faire. Esther, look. Hmm? Next door, a new neighbor. John Truitt! He's on the lawn. Now, for goodness sakes, don't let on that we see him. Ready? Yes. Let's, let, let, let's get a little closer to the railing. Isn't it a gorgeous night, Esther, dear? Heavenly, Rose, just heavenly. He smokes a pipe. I understand they're having a fashion pavilion at the fair. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> I shan't be at all surprised if Joe insists on taking me to the fair every single night. Joe's so overpowering. Oh, prunes. Huh? Well, look, he just walked back into his house. Oh. It's not very neighborly, I must say. Well, he's only lived here two weeks. You can't expect him to fling himself at you. How am I going to meet him? I know. I'll get George Briggs to bring him over here to Lon's going away party. Oh, Rose, could you? Of course. Let me get some stationery. We can write the invitations right now, tonight. He didn't even notice me. What if he can't come to our party? What if he's got a girl? 
The moment I saw him smile, I knew he was just my style. My only regret is we've never met, though I dream of him all the while. But he doesn't know I exist no matter how I may persist so it's clear to see there's no hope for me though I live at 5135 Kensington Avenue and he lives at 5133 how can I ignore the boy next door? I love him more than I can say. Doesn't try to please me, doesn't even tease me, and he never sees me glance his way. And though I'm heart sore, the boy next door, affection for me won't display. I just adore him, so I can't ignore him. The boy next My dear Mr. Truitt, you are cordially invited to a party on Saturday next in honor of our brother, Alonzo Smith, Jr., who is living for Princeton. Cordially yours, Rose Smith. How's that, Es? Well, it's pretty formal, but I guess we'd be, better be pretty formal to start with. Huh? Oh, Princeton's a peach of a school. A peach of a school. Well, that's where I'm going. I... Oh, Esther. Yes, Alonzo? Uh, may I present our neighbor, John Truitt? I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch the name. John Truitt. Oh, <laughs> well, welcome to our house, Mr. Truitt. Well, thank you. You know, this is the first party I've been invited to since we moved to St. Louis. Oh, do you live here? Well, of course he lives here, right next door. Oh, well, that's where I've seen you. I thought you looked familiar. <laughs> if this dance isn't taken, Miss Smith, I'd be very honored. Oh, I'm terribly sorry, but I... Oh, well, since you're our next-door neighbor. Thank you. Uh, if anyone would like some fruit punch, it's there in the dining room. 
Oh, Miss Esther. Uh, yes, Mr. Truitt. There's a mouse in the house. Hmm? Look, on the hall stairs. Why, Tootie Smith, why aren't you asleep? There was too much noise down here. Noise? We've just been dancing and singing. I want to sing, too. Oh, oh come on. <laughs> well, all right, just one song. Now, what would you like to sing, darling? Baby's Boat? Or did you ever see a rabbit climb a tree? Or... Oh, I hate those songs. I want to sing a new one. I was, hmm, last night, dear mother. <laughs> well, you can't sing that. Oh, do let her. She's such a sweet little thing. Sweet? She's a little hoodlum. Oh, oh well, all right. Go ahead, Tootie. I was drunk last night, dear mother. I was drunk the night before. But if you'll forgive me, mother, I'll never get drunk anymore. <laughs> Tootie, you're a very bad little girl. <laughs> it's really Lon's fault, Mr. Truett. He teaches her those things. Now, Tootie, you scoot right up to bed this instant. Uh, Rose, oh, Rose, dear, might we have some dance music, please? Oh, Looks like I'm the last one leaving. Uh, well, uh, good night, Miss Esther. Uh, good night. Yes, oh, don't forget your beauty sleep. Presently, Rose, dear. Well, I guess I'd better get going. Uh, well, uh, we'll be seeing some more of you, won't we? Oh, you bet. You, you'll be joining our crowd Friday. We're all taking the trolley out to the fairgrounds just to see what progress they're making. Oh, sure, sure. Well... Good night. Good night. Oh, uh, that Welch rabbit you served was ginger peachy. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad. Oh, uh, Mr. Truitt. Uh, yes, Miss Esther? Uh, this is a, an untoward request, but would you mind accompanying me through the house while I turn out the lights? Well, I... It's just that I, uh, I'm afraid of mice. <laughs> well, sure, sure. That's the least a man can do for his charming hostess. Those two lights in the hall, and then we'll be finished. Oh, if you can't see, just take my hand, Mr. Truitt. Well, uh, thanks. This way. Say, uh, mm, that's nice perfume. Do you like it? It's essence of violet. Uh, exactly the same kind my grandmother uses. Uh, no, this is different. <laughs> well, here's the hall. Uh, hadn't we better save those lights for your folks? Well, I'll just turn them down dim. There. My, it's certainly dark in here with the lights off, isn't it? <sighs> Gosh, Miss Esther, I hope I'm not too presumptuous, but you don't need any beauty sleep. Oh, what a nice thing to say. Oh, this has been a great evening. I'll never forget it. Do you mean that? Yes, yes, I do. Do you always... Shake hands with the girl when you say goodnight? Oh, no, no, sir. Only when I... Well, when I think an awful lot of her. Oh. A and you know something else, Esther? What? You've got a mighty strong grip for a girl. <laughs> Good night, Esther. Good night, neighbor. Judy Garland, Margaret O'Brien, and Tom Drake will return for Act Two of Meet Me in St. Louis in a moment. Reasoned Bleeding. 
Thanks from everyone here at Dime Store Radio Theater and Sheena's Jungle Room. Here's your producer, William Keeley. Act two of Meet Me in St. Louis, starring Judy Garland as Esther, Margaret O'Brien as Tootie, and Tom Drake as John. Well, Friday's come, and with it, the trolley ride to the fairgrounds. Now take a trolley, fill it with boys and girls, and sooner or later, somebody's singing. In this instance, it's Miss Hester Smith, who finds ample reason to sing, for sitting next to her, thoroughly smitten, is the boy next door, John Truett. With my high starch collar and my high top shoes and my hair piled high upon my head, I went to lose a jolly hour on the trolley and lost my heart instead. With his light brown derby and his bright green tie, he was quite the handsomest of men. I started to yen, so I counted to ten, then I counted to ten again. Clang, clang went the trolley, ding, ding, ding went the bell, zing, zing, zing went my heartstrings, from the moment I saw him I fell. Chug, chug, chug went the motor, bump, bump, bump went the brake, thump, thump, thump went my heartstrings, when he smiled I could feel the car shake. He tipped his hat and took a seat He said he hoped he hadn't stepped upon my feet He asked my name, I held my breath I couldn't speak because he scared me half to death Buzz, buzz, buzz went the buzzer Plop, plop, plop went the wheels Stop, stop, stop went my heartstrings As he started to go, then I started to know how it feels when the universe reels The day was bright, the air was sweet The smell of honeysuckle charmed her off her feet She tried to sing but couldn't speak In fact she loved him so she couldn't even speak Buzz, buzz, buzz went the buzzer Plop, plop, plop went the wheels Stop, stop, stop went my heartstrings as he started to leave, I took hold of his sleeve with my hand, and as if it were planned, he stayed on with me, and it was grand just to stand with his hand holding mine, till the end of the It's a few weeks later now, Halloween, and at the Smith home, disguised in sagging pants, a long red nose, and bristling mustaches, Miss Tootie Smith is about to brave the thrills and terrors of this ghost-ridden night. And wait you see what I do to Mr. Bruckhoff. Do you know what Mr. Bruckhoff does, Esther? Minds his own business, as far as I know. He buys meat and poison, and then he puts it all together and kills cats, Thousands of cats. And when he's not killing cats, he beats his wife with a red-hot poker. My goodness. 
Glennie Travis told me. Are you going out with Glennie and the rest of those ragamuffins? They're all down at the corner. They got a big red bonfire. That's so the banshees will know where to come. And I'm going to oh. go and... Oh, dear. Oh, oh don't my. be afraid, Mama. It's only me. Oh. oh, why, I thought some horrible ghost had come into the house. Oh, I'm horrible, all right. I was murdered last week in a den of thieves. Oh, here it is, Tootie. Here's oh. your flower. Thanks, Grandpa. You wouldn't catch me out on a night like this for a million dollars. Why not? Too many terrible spirits roaming around. Grandpa. Oh, go on, Tootie. It's Halloween. I just hope I get back to my bed and board all right. If you wet the flower before you throw it, it's harder for the victims to get it off. Well, goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Well, all right, everybody, I guess we're all ready to yeah. go. Yeah. I'm ready, Glenn. Mrs. Wilkins said she'd leave her hammock on the front porch. And would the children please bring it back after they're through stealing it? Maybe we will and maybe we won't. Anyway, you ain't coming. Why not? Because you're too little, Tootie. Hey, who's going to take the Brokoff's house? Not me. Mr. Brokoff's got a great big beard. And a great big bulldog. And he poisons cats and beats oh, his wife. Oh, Tootie, why don't you go home? Well, somebody's got to take the Brokoff's. I'll take him. I'll take the Brokoff's. Oh, oh Dad, Dad, I don't need to go on home till you grow up. I won't go home. I won't. I'm going to take the Brokoff's. I'll torture him good and pull their roof down. Well, you got some flour? Yes. Just remember, if you don't hit Mr. Brokoff in the face with a flower and say, I hate you, the Banshees will haunt you forever. They will? Well, what did you think? Well, here I go. And come back when your mission is over. We'll be meeting here around the fiery furnace. Oh, Lordy, I sure wish Esther was here. I can't do it. I can't. I'm too scared. Well, what do you want? Don't try to run away. Yes, Mr. Brokoff. Did you ring my doorbell, ghost? Yes, sir. Well, go on. Throw the flower on me. All right. Some more. On my beard. Yes, sir. Now say it. Say it. I, I hate you, Mr. Brokoff. That's fine, Tootie. Good night, dear. <laughs> most horrible. I'm the most horrible of everybody. Is that you, Judy? I'm coming. Well, did you have a nice... Why, Glennie. Esther, you better come quick. Something happened to Tootie. What are you talking about? Down by the trolley. She got hurt, Esther. She's bleeding like anything. Oh! <laughs> Esther, did you get Pop on the telephone? No, Mama, they said he just left. It's Tootie's lip, Mama. It's all cut. Oh, good heavens. And a tooth knocked out. Oh, Katie, another compress. There, there, darling. Everything's going to be fine. He tried to kill me. Why, Tootie? She must mean the streetcar. I think it hit her. It wasn't the streetcar. It, it was John Truitt. Oh, John no. Truitt? John Truitt? He was going to kill me. That's how I got hurt. When I screamed, he ran away. What? Tootie Smith, that's a monstrous falsehood. Now, wait a minute, Tootie. What's that in your hand? Why, why, it's some strands of hair. Yes, and I don't think it's Tootie's. I yanked it out of his head. He tried to kill me. Brown hair. John Truitt has brown hair. Excuse me. Oh, is that you, Esther? Oh, hello, Esther. John Truitt. Yes? 
Hey, wait a minute. I've come here to ask you something. Hey, cut it out, Esther. The next time you pick hey, on cut somebody, it out. pick on somebody your own size. What do you mean hitting a seven-year-old child? Esther. If there's anything I hate, loathe, despise, and abominate, it's a bully. <laughs> want to sleep in Esther's bed, Mama. Of course, darling. Oh, I hate to think what your father's going to say when he hears about this. He may even strike that truit boy. He won't have to, Mama. I just took care of him. I was drunk last night, dear Mother. I was drunk the night before. Esther, your dress. Oh, that must have happened when he was trying to hold me off. I bit him. I bit him, too. Did you, Tootie? That's not what Tommy Berkheimer says. I've just been talking to him. Did the trolley go off the gra- tracks, Grandpa? No, but the cable came off when the motorman put on the brakes so fast. At least that's what Tommy tells me. What are you talking about? It seems the kids had found an old suit of clothes, so they stuffed it with straw and somebody put it on the trolley tracks. We thought the car would go off the tracks. Tootie Smith, why, you're nothing less than a murderess. You might have killed dozens of people. Oh, Rose, you're so stuck up. Tootie, how did you get that lip? How? Because John Truett butted in. He dragged me up an alley so the policeman wouldn't get me. Huh. As though policemen never pay attention to girls. But I yanked his hair out and got away. Then I fell down and cut my lip. Oh, what I'm going to do to you oh. is leave her alone. <laughs> well, what's so funny? Tootie, honestly, you're the most deceitful, sinful creature I've ever seen. And for two cents, I'd... Merciful heavens! John! Oh, no, Esther, not again, please. Oh, John, John, there's been a terrible mistake. There has? Oh, yes, you see, I... Oh, did I do that? Black eye, and this, and this, and this. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. Oh, that's all right. How's Tootie? <laughs> oh, she'll live. <laughs> oh, John, it's, it's awfully nice of you to accept my apology. Well, if you're not busy tomorrow night, could you beat me up again? <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess I better be getting home. Oh, uh, before you go, would you mind helping me turn out the lights? I'm afraid of mice. <laughs> Looks like most of the lights are out. Wouldn't take a minute to turn them on again. Well, wouldn't that be kind of wasting a minute? Yeah. Yeah, I guess it would, Esther. You know, you've got a mighty strong grip for a boy. If I ever catch you fibbing again, Tootie, I'll give you something that you'll... Oh, Esther, dear, I hope... Why, Esther, is there something wrong? Yes, Mama. Roses are red and John's name is Tootie. Esther's in love, and we always knew oh, it. Mama, can't you make Tootie stop? This where the Smith family lives? Why, hello, come on in. Hello. Oh, home, Papa. I almost got killed. We stopped the trolley, and I lost my tooth, and Esther bit John Truett. And Anna. Tootie <coughs> fell, dear, and cut her lip. She's fine. Oh, that's a brave little girl, Tootie. Oh, uh, Anna, for you. Why, Alonzo, what a lovely box of candy. Is anything wrong? <laughs> Anna, the firm is sending me to New York. 
Well, that's lovely, dear. Just as long as you'll be home for Thanksgiving. No, you don't understand. I'm to head the office there. We're moving to New York. Moving? To New York? Well, I don't believe it. Well, I simply don't believe Why, it. Why, Anna, I thought you'd be overjoyed. But New York is such a big city, and... Well, what'll the children do? The same as they do here. Go to school, play, have their friends over. What friends, Alonzo? Yes, what friends? The friends they'll meet in New York. And Tootie just ready to be promoted. And Esther a senior. I've worked all my life to be a senior. And Rose in the Conservatory of Music. Yes, what about me in my life? You can take that with you. It's settled. We're going. Well, I must say you're being very cold-blooded. Well, I've got our future to think about. I've got to worry about where the money's coming from. With Lon in Princeton and Rose in music school and Tootie... Money. I hate, loathe, despise and abominate money. You also spend it. And what about Katie and Grandpa and the chickens? Not that we have many left. That's a minor detail we can discuss later. So I'm a minor detail, am I? You know very well, Papa, I was talking about the chickens. Oh, never mind what happens to your family, <laughs> as long as the chickens are provided for. Now, 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 I guess we're all a little excited. We'll talk this over calmly tomorrow. Well, what's this? Hickory nut cake, as only Katie can make it. Oh, I can't go to New York. I simply can't. I'm taking my cat. Winona goes wherever I go. Well, you keep her cooped up in a tenement. Oh, good evening, Katie. Couldn't help overhearing. Don't they have houses in New York? Rich people have houses. People like us live in flats. Thousands of people in one building. And what about the World's Fair? Yes, just when St. Louis is going to be the center of, of attraction of the entire universe. Katie, this cake is as light as a feather. You can bake anything in our stove. They got little box stoves in them tenements. <clears throat> well, pass your plates, everybody. Have some cake. Thanks. I guess I got some things to do. Excuse me. Oh, you going up too, Grandpa? I, uh, I'll help Katie with the ice cream dishes, Mom. Me too. As long as we're moving, it won't matter if I break some. Aren't you afraid, Anna? Alone in this room with a, a criminal? Now, dear, if you think it's best to move to New York, why, why, that's what we'll do. Eat your cake, Alonzo. It's good to hear you play, Anna. My, that's a nice song. Remember when I used to sing it? Yes. <clears throat> of dark and fair We'll have some cake after all. I want the piece with the rose petals. Mighty nice song. Mighty nice. Rose and I... Well, there's nothing like good music in a piece of hickory cake. No, sir. <laughs> New York is is going to be just just fine. We pause now for station identification. Twas the night before Sheena's and all through the jungle room. All the DJs were stirring, making their cocktails go kaboom. The LP bags were hung by the chimney with care, in the hopes that Mr. Fab soon would be there. 
The crew were all lit, decked out in their best threads, with a band keeping beat on those boss new drumheads. Shangri-La's got a kooky sweater and Barno's sporting a hat, while Jan Turkenberg has the dance moves down pat. When out on the turntables, Chris O. spun a platter. We all sprung to our feet and danced like mad hatters. Then in through the door with a significant flash, flew in Don Bowles with a huge LP stash. Rich in Washington added another hour to his show with a holiday double feature programmed by Don O. When, what to our Hepcat eyeballs should appear? But an overdressed Mr. Fab with all the other DJs, never fear. On the dance floor, he was so lively and quick as we all grooved and frugged to surf songs so slick. It seemed like the tunes all had obscure fame, yet every single one of us knew them all by name. Everybody brought food, there were plenty of fixins, and when it came to drinks, we were all nearly six in, to the top of the porch, and all through the halls. Our DJs were always heard by one and all. Alex Kish and Julie, with Mike Rogers himself. I see Space Brother flipping through records on that shelf. Jamie Jazz and Catherine Sage both shaking their heads at the terrible pun that I, for some reason, just said. Hysterica just got here, but they seem to fit right in. And we're laughing at the choices by DJ Kratoven. Georgie Girl is the peak of fashion and style. And Derek showed up with another record pile. John Nelson and Mark Time are both learning to twerk, while Miss May and Flannery chat in the kitchen and lurk. Sarcophagi and Daryl both like to pose, while Speedo and John P. trade DJ tips like old pros. DJ Babs and M.H. Lee both began to whistle, and you know we all got the It's All Night epistle. We heard Mr. Fab exclaim, quite loud and quite bright, this year we dance to Sheena's all day and all night. everyone here in the Mid Valley, those stationed in the Lava Lamp Lounge itself, the production crew here at Dime Store Radio Theatre and Mid Valley Mutations, and all the volunteers at Sheena's Jungle Room, we wish you a sappy hollandaise, and plenty of new music throughout the coming year. Now, time to get my freak on. Latest skaters. Three of Meet Me in St. Louis, starring Judy Garland, Margaret O'Brien, and Tom Drake, will follow in a moment. Our guest tonight, blonde, blue-eyed Lola Deem, came to Hollywood from Akron, Ohio, by way of Chicago. When MGM saw the screen test she made there, they lost no time in getting her to the coast. I understand you're studying hard, Lola. I am, Mr. Keeley. 
but I'm having fun, too. Such as? Oh, watching pictures being made and seeing as many previews at the studios as possible. That's where I saw The Yearling, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's new Technicolor picture, which people are talking about for the Academy Award. Mm, a superb example of fine acting and photography. And how I envy Jane Wyman in her role opposite Gregory Peck. Oh, a Gregory Peck <laughs> fan, eh? Mm, who isn't? And Claude Jarman, Jr. is so appealing as Jody with his pet fawn. Well, it's often the details that count in making a successful picture, Lola. For instance, the company spent months in Florida to make each sequence in the yearling true to life. Tell me, Lola, do you have any special rule for success? Yes, Mr. Keeley, to profit by experience. Thank you for coming tonight, Miss Lola Deem. We return you now to William Keeley. Act three of Meet Me in St. Louis, starring Judy Garland as Esther, Margaret O'Brien as Tootie, and Tom Drake as John. It's the day before Christmas, a week before the family moves to New York, and five hours before the annual Christmas ball at the Women's Club. And Alonzo Smith, Jr., home from Princeton for the holidays, has a problem. Oh, Lonnie, you needn't be so grouchy just because Lucille Ballard doesn't think you're good enough to take her to the dance tonight. A girl has a right to go to a dance with anyone she wants. I, I just didn't ask her soon enough. Everyone knows Miss Ballard is just an Eastern snob. Well, you're in a fine mood. All because Warren Sheffield asked her instead of you. That's not true. Rose could have had any man she wanted. Except Warren Sheffield. Everyone knows that Lucille Ballard is just throwing herself at Warren because of his father's money. Now, that's what I call real Christmas spirit. Now, just a minute, Katie. Didn't it ever occur to you that you might take your sister to the dance? My own brother? I'd be the laughingstock of St. Louis. Well, thank you. Oh, Katie's absolutely right. Oh, Lon, it's our last dance in St. Louis, and it'd be tragic if either of you missed it. It's all right for you you to talk. You have a date, a real one. Well, Rose, if I didn't have a date with John Truitt, which I have, I'd be thrilled to go with my own brother. Well, I'd be willing, Rose. I mean, I'd be glad to. You would? Why, you two will have the best time of anybody. You won't even have to be polite to each other. Yes, it's half past seven. Oh, oh yes, you look grand, oh. simply grand. That oh. corset makes your figure just elegant. Oh, I feel elegant, but I can't breathe. But if we're going to wreck Lucille Ballard's evening, we definitely need every ounce of allure. Oh, Rose, don't you think I could be alluring without a corset? No, Esther, I don't. After all, you're competing with an Eastern girl. We'll have to monopolize all the worthwhile men. <laughs> Well, there'll only be about 20 boys worth looking at. We could certainly handle 20 men. But what about John Truett? Oh, I'll devote myself to John. But in between times, I'm going to make my presence felt amongst the others. Oh, Esther. What is it, Tootie? Somebody at the back door to see you. Who? <laughs> Gosh, do you look funny. Oh, Tootie. Rose, could I please wear a corset, now, too? Tootie. Who's at the back door? Oh, somebody that looks like John Truett. Oh, oh Rose, give me my kimono. I wonder what he could want. What are you giving me for Christmas, Rose? You'll find out tomorrow. I certainly hope it's a hunting night. Nothing I need worse than a good hunting night. But, John, well, come on in. Yes, I've got some bad news. My, my tuxedo. Well, what about it? It's at the tailor's. You see, I was playing basketball, and when I got there, it was closed. But can't you borrow one? I've tried, but everybody who's got one is going to the ball. 
What about your father's? That was my father's. Well, then find the tailor and make him open the shop. Well, I know his name is Johnson, but I don't know where he lives. Oh, oh this is simply ghastly. Oh, yes, I wouldn't blame you if you never spoke to me again. Oh, well, you, you didn't do it on purpose. I guess there's nothing else I can say. Unless you want to do something else tonight. No, I, I better just stay home and do some packing. You know, we're leaving St. Louis in a few days. I know. And this is a fine going away present I'm giving you. I'll bet you really hate me. Oh, no, John, I don't hate you. I just hate basketball. Simply awful, Esther. I wish I were dead, that's all. Well, there's only one thing to do. Lon will have to take both of us. You don't think I'm going to the smartest ball of the season with my own brother, do well, you? I like that. You wanted me to go with it. You didn't have a date. But I can't handle 20 men alone. I admit it. Did you ever stop to think of what people would come say? In. Come in, Grandpa. You know, the man who built this house cheated your father. The walls are thin as paper. Oh, Grandpa. Now, now, now. <laughs> Esther, it's a funny thing. I took my tuxedo out of the mothballs only yesterday. Looked pretty good, too. That suit of mine does the greatest one step you ever saw. Grandpa, are, are you actually... Esther, what's this toot he says about you're not going to the dance? Who says I'm not going? Of course I'm going. With the handsomest man in town. Madame, I'll pick you up at eight. Esther, Esther, I'm here. I John. made it. Oh, gosh, yes. I didn't find Mr. Johnson until 20 minutes at 10. But he opened up the shop, and well, here I am. Oh, John, so much has happened, and I'm so glad. And if I'm crying, it's just because everything's turned out so simply divinely, and it's Christmas almost. And I... But what's happened? No, don't you see them dancing? Rose and Warren Sheffield. Miss Ballard's a simply charming girl, even if she is an Easterner. She said we're all grown up, aren't we? And since all Warren talks about is Rose, my goodness, why doesn't he fill her dance card? Who's Lucille dancing with? Lonnie, of course. Oh, she's terribly fond of him. It's really so obvious. And now you're here. Oh, John, I've never been so happy in my life. Esther... Could we... Could we go outside for a minute? I want to talk to you. Well, of course, John, if you like. Oh, I wouldn't have said it, Esther, if I thought it would make you cry again. Are you sure you're warm enough? Uh-huh. Oh, I've imagined you saying it thousands of times that... I always planned exactly how I'd act. I never planned to cry. Well, at least you didn't laugh. Laugh? I guess I never asked a girl to marry me before. I guess maybe I was kind of... Oh, well... John, no one could have done it more beautifully. I'm very proud. Esther, will you? Oh, will you, Esther? Of course I will, John. Oh, gosh. Do you realize I might have lost you? A few more days and you'd have been gone. We might never have seen each other again. And now we're engaged. Esther, let's go home and tell your folks right now. Oh, no, uh, not tonight. I, I'd, I'd rather just the two of us knew about it tonight. Now, we're not going to let them talk us out of it. 
After all, we are of age. Well, practically. John, even, even if I it did go to New York, we, we could still work something out. Somehow. Couldn't we, John? Merry Christmas, John. Merry Christmas, Esther. with you, Esther? Of course, darling. Come on now, cover up. You weren't asleep either, were you? Mm-mm. I've just been lying here, thinking. Was the dancing nice? Wonderful. I've been watching the moon so bright, but I haven't seen anything. Did he come? Did who come? Santa Claus. <laughs> now you know he's not going to come until you're fast asleep. Then sing to me, Esther. Sing to me till I'm asleep. All right. What kind of song, darling? A Christmas song. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year all our troubles will be out of sight Have yourself a merry little Christmas Make the Yuletide gay Next year all our troubles will be miles away again as in olden days happy golden days of yore faithful friends who were dear to us will be near to us once more someday soon we all will be together if the fates allow until then we'll have to muddle through still awake. I can't go to sleep. I can't. Oh, Esther, how will Santa Claus know where to find us next year? We'll be in New York. Oh, you can't fool him. He can find anybody he wants to find. If he brings me any toys, I'm taking them with me. I'm taking my dolls and the dead ones, too. I'm taking everything. Of course you are. You won't have to leave anything behind. Except your snowmen, of course. My snowmen? What? We'd look pretty silly trying to get the snowman on the train now, wouldn't we? Snowman, my snowman. 
Tootie, come back here. My poor little snowmen. What's going to happen to them? Snowmen, snowmen. Tootie, darling, it's, it's all right. It's all right. But what on earth happened, Esther? What was Tootie doing in the backyard? She just ran out, Papa, and it started to smash all her snowmen. Nobody's going to have my snowmen. Not if we're moving to New York. Oh, don't cry, darling. You can build other snowmen in New York. No, you can't. You can't do anything in New York like you can in St. Louis. You sure she'll be all right? Yes, Papa, you go back to bed. I'll take care of her. Well, good night, Esther. Good, good night. Tootie, darling, New York's a wonderful place. Wait till you see the fine home we're going to have and the friends we're going to make. But the main thing, Tootie, is we're all going to be together, just like we've always been. That's what really counts. We could be happy anywhere, as long as we're together. Anna, Anna, wake up. Rose, Grandpa, Lonnie, everybody get up. Esther, Tootie, come on, all of you, come on downstairs. Uh, Papa, Papa, what's wrong? Everything's wrong. Anna, where are you? Grandpa, come downstairs this minute. Now, everybody get in here and sit down. There's nothing to sit on, Alonzo. Nothing but packing boxes. Then come into the dining room. I've got a few words to say to this family. Well, what what is, is it, for heaven's sake? Well... We are not moving to New York. And I don't want to hear a word about it. We're going to stay right here in St. Louis till we rot. We haven't rotted yet, Alonzo. But what will you say to the firm, Papa, to Mr. Fenton? That I've changed my mind. I'm a junior partner, not a puppet on a string. But New York, Alonzo, you you did think it was a fine opportunity, didn't you? Well, I, I was looking forward to going, yes. But after all these weeks, watching my family's hearts breaking and... And then Tootie a little while ago and... <laughs> well, New York hasn't got a copyright on opportunity. The trouble with you people is you don't appreciate St. Louis because it's right here under your noses. I'll take that. Oh! Is this you, Rose? Oh, I mean... Do I sound like Rose? Well, then get her to the phone. Wake her up or something. Now, just a minute, young man. Who do you think you're Papa, talking to? Papa, Papa, I... please let me take it. Hello? Rose Smith, I haven't slept a wink since I took you home from the dance, and I won't go on like this any longer. Warren. We're going to get married, and I don't want to hear any arguments. Now, that's final. Oh, I love you. Warren, but... Warren. Anna, who is that boy? Do you know? Alonzo, he's a very fine young man. Now, we'll talk about it later. Oh, Rose, darling, you handle the whole thing magnificently. He's just putty in your hands. <sighs> well, I hope you'll be very happy, Rose. And sometime, if you can arrange it... I'd like to meet that young fellow. Papa, Mama. If Rose is going to get married, maybe we better open up her Christmas presents now. (laughs) You little faker. It's your presents you're after. He's been here. Santa Claus. Well, of course, in the living room. Oh, good heavens. It's Christmas morning. (laughs) Merry Christmas, Papa. Papa, you've given us the nicest Christmas anybody could ask for. We're staying in St. Louis. Good morning, Mr. Costello. Good morning, today. Gonna help me deliver ice today? Today? Do you know what today is? Sure do. First day of May, 1904. It's fair day, Mr. Costello. Today's the day the World's Fair opens. My family's going, and Papa says we're not coming home till they throw us out. Is that a fact? Well, do you have me dress? But don't you worry. I'll help you deliver ice tomorrow. John, it's 8 o'clock. We promised...
to meet the family for dinner at the French Pavilion. Oh, we'll be there, Esther. I just didn't want you to miss this. Miss what, John? The electric lights. Look, Es, they're turning them on. Oh. Here they come. Oh. 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 John, it, it's, it's just breathtaking. I never dreamed anything could be so beautiful. Imagine there's never been anything like this in the whole world. That's right, Es. There's nothing like this. And no one like you. Just think of all the things we'll have to tell our kids someday. I wonder if they'll believe it, John. I can hardly believe it myself. You and, and a World's Fair right here where we live. Right here in St. Louis. Radio Theater is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. During the holiday season, we like to give the staff here in the Lava Lamp Lounge some much-needed time off. And with only 19 shopping days left until the big day later this month, we would like to offer this simple reminder in lieu of the usual nonsense we often provide. Shop local. Your chosen family is more important than anything else. Don't scrimp on the sides pies, or extra LPs, and let Sheena's Jungle Room be your guide through the darkest days to something we can all enjoy in the following year. From all of us here at Dime Store Radio Theater, Sappy Hollandaise. And now, we return you to Lux Radio Theater, here on Dime Store Radio Theater. Here's Mr. Keeley at the microphone. Now that you've met them in St. Louis, we invite you to meet them as they are in real life. Tonight's delightful stars, Judy Garland, Margaret O'Brien, and Tom Drake. <laughs> Judy, we enjoyed both your singing and your acting. <laughs> well, Bill, tonight's play certainly puts one in the mood for Christmas. You know, Christmas is only 23 days away. <laughs> hey, that's pretty close figuring, Margaret. And Judy, this will be the first Christmas for the newest member of your family. Have you bought the baby any presents yet, Judy? Well, I haven't done much shopping yet, Margaret. Judy's been pretty busy. It was just recently she finished her latest Metro-Golden-Mare Technicolor picture till the clouds roll by. And Margaret's been pretty busy, too. She's been appointed National Junior Chairman of the Infantile Paralysis Fund. Just three weeks and 48 hours until Christmas. <laughs> and during the Christmas holidays, Margaret, you'll have to see Tom Drake's new MGM picture, Courage of Lassie. <laughs> As a matter of fact, Margaret has one of Lassie's puppies. Is that right, Margaret? Yes, and I named him Laddie. But just think only 18 shopping days until Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Margaret. And remember, only 20, uh, 23 days until Christmas. <laughs> yeah, and remember, too, the days are getting shorter, Margaret. <laughs> Gee, that makes things even better. Good night. Good, Good night. night. And best holiday wishes to you all. <laughs> Judy Garland, Margaret O'Brien, and Tom Drake appeared by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, producers of The Secret Heart. Heard in our cast tonight were Gail Gordon as Alonzo, Colleen Gray as Rose, Regina Wallace as Mrs. Smith, Norman Field as Grandpa, and Billy Roy, Noreen Gamil, Dick Ryan, Clark Gordon, Charles Seal, Truda Marson, Johnny McGovern, Joel Davis, Jerry Farber, Howard Jeffrey, and Lois Kennison. Our music was directed by Louis Silvers. This program is broadcast to our men and women overseas 
through cooperation with the Armed Forces Radio Service. And this is your announcer, John Milton Kennedy. Dime Store Revelations. The show within a show where we do a little uh, conversation, as it were, about uh, what's been going on and where we are going and what's happening next. Pretty lively chat tonight, so I want to give a little uh, shout out to uh, uh, Charles and Scott sixty seven Imaginos. It's always a, always a pleasure when Imaginos is in the in the chat. Uh, and uh, let's see, M H Lee. Uh, ooh, uh, oh, I, I think Mister Fab's also hanging out. You know, uh, it's one of those shows. Uh, uh, w R joined us a little late. Oh, and and Arvo uh, is in there. Hello, Arvo. I I, I, I missed your comments, but uh, thanks for thanks for listening. This is one of those shows that actually you kind of get a little engrossed in the story and then um, uh, you kind of uh, forget to chat. But I, I, I've seen this movie and I've listened to this uh, radio program a couple of times before, so uh, I can, I can kind of tune out. <clears throat> I want to thank uh, Barno and uh, uh, Kratoven for uh, helping set up uh, uh, my program. I, I, it's always nice to have a good lead-in show uh, f- uh, for your own. It, it makes um, uh, it, it gets you uh, in the mood, kind of energizes you, you know, that kind of thing, and, and um, they always do a wonderful job. Um, I know Kratoven was only there for the final voiceover, but uh, still, uh, it's, it's always a, a good uh, energizing moment to have uh, that kind of programming um, I don't know. I, I, I miss going into the studio and having like the DJ on before you and turning that up in the um, lounge before you go into the studio to do your show. And I don't know. And it just so listening to Sheena's before I do my own show is, is the, the closest analog I have anymore. Well, we have gone full holiday mode in my house. I am wearing a Santa hat. Uh, we decorated uh, our tree and uh, uh, put up the blow molds. Um, it's 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 on, as they say. And so, uh, yeah, I can't help but go through some of these old uh, holiday programs uh, this time of year. Uh, strange that I keep finding ones that I've actually never listened to before. Um, uh, and uh, I, yeah, I mean, let's see. Uh, you know, the command performance is probably the best example of that uh, coming up next. Uh, um, now, uh, uh, most of the stuff that we play on Dime Store Radio Theater was actually broadcast on just regular radio, you know, like 
uh, NBC or uh, uh, CBS or something like that. You tune it in and, and you just listen to the show. Uh, and it was like very regimented kind of broadcast radio. You got news and entertainment, uh, music, all sorts of stuff. Um, but uh, Command Performance was a show that was recorded in front of an audience, uh, and it was uh, recorded specifically for broadcasting on uh, the, uh, what do they call it, um, AFRS, the Armed Forces Radio Service. Um, and uh, this developed very quickly after World War II started. Uh, it was a service that uh, was uh, under the uh, assumption that, okay, we need to help entertain our troops if we're going to ask them to do this very, very, very difficult work. <laughs> um, and, and, of course, uh, a lot of it was kind of, you know, uh, arguing still in favor of continuing to uh, help out with the war effort. World War II was a, a massive uh, uh, a political uh, and uh, um, financial uh, juggernaut in the, in the late 30s and 40s. So uh, uh, it was hard to ignore and it was hard to not participate. Um, and so uh, they always found different ways to make money. And of course, Command Performance was another radio show that they could get a little government funding for and uh, put on. Um, the idea being, um, let's get some of the best music and uh, comedy and uh, scenes from movies and whatever and have them put together uh, in front of uh, an audience. Uh, and so these audience members would pay to see these shows. It would be a huge stage, big performances, lots of people uh, putting them uh, these shows together. Um, and it would just be like act after act after act after act. Uh, it was they're kind of phenomenal in a way because it is like a concentrated dose of a lot of Hollywood entertainment in one place doing that show. Uh, I mean, it's just it's really uh, kind of um, kind of amazing. Um, and, and so they did it for years and years. Uh, uh, there's a ton of these, and they are very well documented because since these were sent out to army bases and these shows were often very popular uh, and uh, army radio continued uh, for decades in a lot of ways well past the point that um, uh, uh, dramatic radio was being listened to by regular American audiences uh, it was being listened to on army bases uh, by soldiers and GIs and families uh, and so uh, command performance um, might uh, hold a special place in many hearts for many people now, the Christmas episodes of Command Performance were usually pretty outstanding. Um, and so I have selected one from 1942, hosted by Bob Hope. Um, and that is going to be kind of like our filler stuff for uh, the month of December. Um, uh, because uh, essentially, we're going to play two features <laughs> each episode. Um, uh, a full episode of Lux uh, Radio uh, Theater. And, and then a backup detective show of some kind uh, in hour two. Uh, now, um, uh, that doesn't quite add up to a full hour. Um, and we do have our biography story of uh, Bogart and Bacall, which I am going to get to here in a moment, um, which we will be playing as the uh, uh, Dime Store Revelations kind of main feature throughout December. Um, we started it last week. And, and my thinking behind this is that Bogart's birthday is Christmas Day. Who doesn't enjoy a little bit of uh, of uh, Humphrey Bogart's uh, life story? He's a he was a hard drinking, uh, hard living man. He did some some crazy, crazy stuff, uh, and uh, um, uh, made some stellar movies. So um, 
So we kind of got like a little bit of an introduction to his career last time, but we have he hasn't really be- become anything yet. He's uh, he hasn't even made a western or anything, so uh, he's still kind of figuring out what his his deal is. So that's that's where we left uh, that story before. Our uh, closing feature this week, we're, we're going to have a rotating cast of different detective shows to close out. Um, uh, the, the the show uh, we're gonna run an episode of Rogues Gallery um, and uh, this was a, a pretty uh, cool show let me double check my fact here because I think if I'm not mistaken it was uh, a um, uh, well let me just make sure before I, I make a, a fool of myself live on the radio um, uh, but uh, uh, it was yes I was Dick Powell okay good <laughs> I thought I was losing my radio chops. Um, yeah, so uh, anyway, uh, Dick Powell, uh, who was uh, on a number of radio shows and um, in film and whatnot, a very uh, well-known uh, performer and actor, um, this was one of his radio ventures, uh, Rogue's Gallery, and it's a little more hard-boiled uh, than um, uh, what he might be known for uh, because, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, his other program, uh, uh, Richard Diamond, is kind of a more musical detective show uh, and a little bit lighter in terms of the uh, noir type elements. Uh, and so uh, it's not quite uh, as um, zippy as uh, Rogue's Gallery, if I, uh, if I, if I do say so. Um, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, it, gosh. Um, Yes, it was Richard Diamond. Private Detective was the follow-up to Rogue's Gallery. Uh, I mean, Dick Powell is a radio natural, and so it's always great to hear him do a little bit of um, uh, gumshoeing. But uh, I have a special fondness for Rogue's Gallery because uh, it is a little bit uh, more hard-boiled, shall we say, uh, than uh, some of the other shows that Dick Powell did. Um, It in a way kind of goes neck and neck with Philip, Philip Marlowe in terms of kind of subject matter and uh, twists and turns and uh, body count. So uh, I, I uh, we're only going to hear one for the holidays. It's a, it's a, it's a Christmas themed one, but um, I do recommend uh, rogues gallery. If you haven't heard it before, it might be a little while before I have room for it in a, a dime store radio theater uh, presentation format. But um Dig in if you if you can. Uh, I think uh, the rewards are, are pretty deep if you um, give it a shot. There's not that many of them. I think there's only twenty some odd episodes or so, but um, I could be wrong about that. Anyway, uh, yeah, like I said, we are in full uh, holiday mode, and so uh, we're going to do these movie features uh, throughout uh, the month. And uh, should I tell people what the lineup is? Does that seem like a... I mean, I guess that's probably a good idea. I mean, my idea here is that, like, I love the sensation of flipping through the channels and catching weird old movies, uh, around, especially around the holidays when you got some time to burn and you're hanging out with family maybe and you uh, maybe had a couple of uh, uh, eggnog cocktails uh, with lunch. And so, you know, let's see what's on. Um, and so uh, you, our, our running order, as it stands right now... Um, Next week, It's a Wonderful Life. The week after, Miracle on 34th Street. The day after Christmas, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And then the day after New Year's Day, After the Thin Man. 
We've already uh, um, actually heard uh, The Thin Man here on this program before. So after The Thin Man, the follow-up, and set on New Year's Day. New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, you know, around that time. So. Uh, our backup features uh, um, are, are going to be The Saint, The New Adventures of Nero Wolf, The Damon Runyon Theater, and The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. So a nice, uh, well-rounding uh, assortment of, uh, a well-rounded, excuse me, assortment of uh, detective programs that we haven't yet heard on the show. A lot of stars, a lot of people that uh, haven't uh, been featured on the show yet. So I'm looking forward to getting into some of this stuff. But why don't we just get into the rest of today's program? Because uh, I'm talking and that means there's less stories being heard, uh, if you know what I mean. Anyway, uh, thank you so much for listening, everybody. It is uh, Dime Store Radio Theater here on Sheena's Jungle Room, the best place to be on a Monday or a Tuesday night. And with that, let's get started. Westerns proved that he was not meant to be a cowboy. And playing a modern-day vampire in the return of Dr. X was not the change of pace he was looking for. Once again, he felt his movie career was floundering. It was while he was working on the film Marked Woman, he became involved with actress Mayo Murtheau. He divorced Mary Phillips and jumped into a third marriage. It quickly became a contentious relationship, drenched in alcohol and jealousy. And I think they just, you know, two kind of souls that were lost found each other at that time. And they stayed together and it was a lot of drinking, you know, a little violence every once in a while, you know, but that was all drink-fueled. Bogart and Bacall. Hollywood's Golden Age, Part 2. Bogart worried that he was about to strike out in Hollywood for the third time. But another movie tough guy of the era unintentionally started giving him the breaks he needed. The story of the many ways that George Raft managed to outsmart himself and promote Humphrey Bogart almost makes it seem as if there is some kind of a hand of destiny guiding our careers. Because at every turn, over a period of several years involving several pictures, George Raft was wrong, 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 and it was good, good, good for Bogey. Tired of playing gangsters, Raft's turned down High Sierra. So Warner Brothers gave the part of Roy Earl to Bogart. I'm giving you a chance to blow. If you decide to stick, I'll shoot the first one that don't do as I tell him. High Sierra, which, which is a terrific film, is terrific partly because it represented the end of a tradition, the beginning of a new one. It was the end of the classic gangster cycle. You could say almost that it's the first of Bogart's anti-hero heroes. That the character also achieves a great deal of nobility and stature, and he's a gangster. Bogart proved he could carry a picture, but it was thanks again to George Raft that he was catapulted into stardom. One of the screenwriters of High Sierra was going to direct his first film. Raft didn't feel he should work with a novice, so once again, Bogart got the part. It was a bad career move for Raft because the young director was John Huston, and his first movie was The Maltese Falcon. What have you ever given me beside money? Have you ever given me any of your confidence, any of the truth? Haven't you tried to buy my loyalty with money and nothing else? What else is there I can buy you with? 
With his portrayal of Sam Spade, Bogart created the modern movie detective. Suddenly with Maltese Falcon, with John Huston working together with him, it was something of our present time, a coolness, um, an awareness that um, it sort of grew up all of a sudden. And uh, he took on the mantle of uh, a generation, really. We were talking about a lot more money than this. There are more of us to be taken care of now. Well, that may be, but I've got the falcon. You may have the falcon, but we certainly have you. The team of director John Huston and Humphrey Bogart was on its way to becoming one of the most creative relationships in movie history. How can you accuse Huston and Bogart were both men's men. They had a lot of women in their lives, but they were guys. They liked to drink. They both liked to drink a whole lot, and they drank a whole lot together, and that cemented a bond between them, I think, that was very important. But they were also smart people. They were well-read, they were, they were thoughtful people who were undoubtedly able to have conversations about things other than the picture they were working on. Two months after the Maltese Falcon opened, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Luckily for the movie-going public, Bogart, then in his early 40s, was too old to serve in the military. At the beginning of 1942, Bogart signed a new contract with Warner Brothers for $2,750 a week. But the studio still controlled what films he would appear in. Early that year, he made a forgettable film called The Big Shot. Next was Across the Pacific with John Huston just before the director began his wartime service. Then, in May, Bogart reported to work on another B picture, being shot on the Warner's back lot in Burbank, California. The rest of the cast wasn't set yet, the script was not finished, and even its title, Everybody Comes to Rick's, would end up changing to Casablanca. I was willing to shoot Captain Reno and I'm willing to shoot you. All right, Major, you asked for it. He was the perfect Rick because he was able to combine self-pity with heroism. When you look at Rick sitting there late at night in Rick's place, drunk, remembering Ilsa in Paris, remembering how much he had lost, he can play that hurt, that, that vulnerability, that uh, guy who will never be able to bounce back. And at the same time, you see inside of him that idealism. He has the cynicism that says, I stick my neck out for nobody. But at the same time, he sticks his neck way out. And that transition was the sort of thing that Bogart was so good at. Casablanca was a hit. And Bogart was now a romantic leading man. He had worried that in an era where the star always got the girl, Casablanca's ending might hurt, not help his career. Of course, nothing about Casablanca's success was conventional. Things were looking up for Bogart, and in real life, he was about to get the girl. The only problem was that he was still married to a woman whose jealous rages were more than just empty threats. With hits like the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca to his credit, 1943 should have been a great year for Bogart. Instead, his next three films did nothing to further his career. Now a star, he battled directly with Warner Brothers studio head, Jack Warner. Back then, the studio system was horrible. Obviously, it gave people their start, but that's the only place they could go. The actors were indentured servants, and I respect him for fighting with Jack Warner, uh, for continually refusing to buckle under the system. He wasn't stupid, though. He waited until he had the power to do it. 
and uh, he just bucked him and bucked him and bucked him at every turn. While fighting with the front office by day, Bogart's marriage with Mayo was another source of continuing conflict. They were becoming notorious for fighting in public, and the violence was escalating. In Hollywood, we call him the battling Bogarts. And one time, Richard Arlen, who was one of our big leading men here, and I and Bogey, we're going to have dinner, which we often did. We often, the three of us often had, had dinner. And Bogey was late, which was very unusual. He was very punctual. And he arrived about a half hour late. And he had four scratches from his hairline all the way down his face. There, and his shirt was bloody. <laughs> he arrived and said, Dick A.C., I'm sorry I'm late, but he said, I had to take Mayo to the hospital. She has a broken jaw. So just looking at him with the, with the scratches and the blood and saying it had a broken, you knew, you could picture what, what had happened. Their volatile marriage even spilled over into Bogart's public service efforts during the war. How are our boys doing? During the Second World War, they had these USO tours. Her and Bogart went on these tours, you know. And would you believe it? They got kicked out of the U.S. store for fighting. Bogart's behavior was worrying some of his friends. His drinking was out of control. And sooner or later, Mayo, who had already pulled a gun on him and scarred him with a knife, might have just finished him off. At this point in his life, getting involved with a teenage girl should have been his final downfall, but it turned out to be his salvation. Aspiring actress Betty Persky had a new stage name, Lauren Bacall, and her big break was a starring role in To Have and Have Not. I'm hard to get, Steve. All you have to do is ask me. You know what you're getting into. Howard Hawks wanted to find an actress who could hold her own with Bogart, and amazingly he found this 19-year-old New York girl, hard as nails, tough as they make them, obviously filled with self-confidence, and she held her own against this movie icon. She met my father, and it was probably not love at first sight, but love at second sight, you know? I mean, the first sight, it's like, what's with this old guy? And the second time, it's like, whoa. What'd you do that for? Been wondering whether I'd like it. What's the decision? I don't know yet. A director knows what's happening. And Howard Hawks always said, the minute I saw Humphrey Bogart, the minute I saw Lauren Bacall, it was like Chinese firecrackers going off. And I knew I had the chemistry that I needed and wanted for this picture. In reality, what we're seeing is a real, a real seduction go on. And there's nothing. Uh, nothing that you could make up that would be better than that. And here you have this extraordinary seduction happening with the dialogue and just the body language. I mean, this is lovemaking. Bogart and Bacall will return next week here on Dime Store Radio Theater. Tune in and follow the story. Well, well, well. It looks like there's an unexpected gift left under the tree this year. And would you look at that? It appears to be a selection from the Christmas Eve episode of Command Performance from 1942. 
And men, hang on to your G.I. hats as your star-packed Christmas show starts rolling out of Hollywood with that rolling stone who's gathered millions of friends in the United Nations, the commanding officer of command performance and your master of ceremonies, Bob Hope. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob, Command Performance Hope. Telling all you soldiers, sailors, and marines that although Johnny Doughboy found a rose in Ireland, what he really wants is that stinkweed in Berlin. <laughs> yes, sir, it's a great thrill and an honor to be on this command performance show on this Christmas Eve, the time of year when everyone has a feeling of love. Boy, you should see all the young couples walking in the park, the fellow with his arm around the girl, and the man from the draft board with his arm around the fellow. <laughs> But, fellows, back home here, the women are making this a victory Christmas. My aunt is very patriotic. Yesterday, she gave her girdle to the scrap drive. Now she's dreaming of a wide Christmas. <laughs> and, every... and everything about my aunt is patriotic. Even her dog. The other day, he chased me down the street, finally caught me and bit off the seat of my pants. Thank heavens, it was Meatless Tuesday. <laughs> But all the women are patriotic these days, and they're all doing their part. Today, wives are no longer backseat drivers, no sir. They sit up in the hood now with a straw and siphon the gas tanks of the cars in front of them. <laughs> and lots of people are using substitutes for gas. One of the musicians in Al Newman's band filled his tank with whiskey, and it worked swell. Only that was the first time in history a Pontiac ever sang Sweet Adeline, <laughs> staggered up Vine Street, flirted with a Buick, and spit in a traffic cop's eye. <laughs> I live near Bing Crosby in the Save Rubber. We're sharing the burden. One day he drives his car to the studio, and the next day I drive it. And... <laughs> People are really saving their tires. In fact, I was riding home in the streetcar today, and at Vine Street, Henry Ford got on. <laughs> That's the end of that joke. I don't know where... <laughs> what an end. All the women here at home have been marvelous. They do everything. Tonight I had a woman cab driver bring me down to the studio. She was wonderful. She was driving the cab with one hand and knitting a sweater with the other. In one block, she knit one, Pearl two, and hit three. And yesterday I had a cab driver who had a little baby right in the front seat with her. As I got out and gave her a dollar, the baby started to cry. I had to wait five minutes for the change. You don't get that at first, then it sneaks up on you, you know? And you hate yourself for letting it. Now, nah, but fellas, let's start answering that G.I. Christmas mail to command performance. For you 20 pigeon experts in the amazing unit of APO 958, for Sergeant Sy in the mob in India, for Dutch Burke Holder and you 25 men in War J in that Pearl Harbor hospital, and for all of you down in the Caribbean, here's the number one trio of the AEF, the Pennsylvania Polka and the Andrews Sisters. Pennsylvania 
sisters, and thanks to a really terrific guy, Alfred Newman, who's conducting the orchestra tonight. Well, gang, all during the past week, Spike Jones and the City Slickers have been haunting our local junk shops looking for toy instruments on which to beat out a famous old Christmas tune so many of you have asked for. So here it is, Jingle Bells, melted down and recast by that sensational novelty band, Spike Jones and the City Slickers. <laughs> Before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, hardly at all. <laughs> oh, Thomas, oh, Cupid, oh, Thunder and Blitz. I gotta straighten out this fireplace one of these days. 
brought that barrage balloon in here. And what's this? Nestled near the bottom of our stockings with care? Why, it's a holiday episode of Rogue's Gallery. This one entitled, Fortune in Furs. W. Fitch Company, makers of those fine Fitch products, presents Dick Powell as private investigator Richard Rogue in Rogue's Gallery. Rogue speaking. Well, uh, things were a little slow at the office, which is my way of saying I didn't have a client or a dime. And I was indulging in my favorite form of athletics. A fast game of snooker pool with Herb Heidi, the bookie at the deluxe pool hall. Heidi was born with a pool cue in one hand and a cue ball in the other, and I was born with an eight ball birthmark. He was trimming me like a Christmas tree. And I was glad when the elevator boy from my building yelled into the door that I had a customer in my office. So I shoved off to talk to this volunteer victim. When I opened the door to my office, I saw him standing there, a dignified-looking white-haired gent, with a strong nose, a weak mouth, and uh, the nice middle-class air of substantial citizenry. You're Mr. Rogue? That's right. You want to talk business with me, Mr. Uh... Uh, Grant? George Grant, yes. Oh, have a chair, Mr. Grant. No, thank you. I prefer to stand. Mr. Rogue... I understand that you have connections with the fire insurance companies. That you are sometimes retained by them to investigate losses which might have been caused by arson. That's right. Go on. Are you interested in the fire at the Matthews Fur Company warehouse a week ago? I could be. That uh, that fire was arson, Mr. Rogue. Mm-hmm. I can tell you some very interesting facts about it. Well, good, good. That was a pretty important claim, wasn't it? The fire destroyed over $100,000 worth of furs. Huh? Well, start talking, Grant. I, uh, I'd like to have $1,000 before I talk with you, Mr. Rogue. Well, I don't usually pay out that kind of money until I know what I'm buying. I'm not saying a word, sir, till I get $1,000. I've been double-crossed once on this deal, and I don't intend to take a chance on getting the same treatment from you. Just how much did you have to do with this torching, Grant? I don't intend to answer that question. Do I get my $1,000, Mr. Rogue? Well, uh, come back in an hour. You have the money for me then? Yeah, yeah, come back in an hour. And your story had better be good, Grant. I'm a busy man. I haven't time to fool around with crackpots. I'll have the proof. Okay. So long now. Oh, it's 4 o'clock, Grant. I'll see you at 5. On the dot, right? I'll be here. Your outfit had the Matthews Fur Company warehouse fire covered, didn't they? Who is this? This is Richard Rogue. Yes, yes, we had it. $160,000 claim. Well, fine. Uh, say, uh, would you pay me 10% of what I saved you on that claim if I could prove the fire was arson? $16,000? <laughs> no. Okay, okay. Save $16,000 and lose one hundred and sixty. I can afford it if you can. Wait a minute. How can you prove arson? 
Well, I've got a man. He wants to talk. He says he can prove arson. I believe him. I'll give you 10000 for a conviction. I'll take it. Look, send the $1,000 retainer over here, special messenger, right away. It's important. Uh... Hey, wait a minute. Hello, Flynn. Yes, where have you been, Rogue? Well, my source of information has just been eliminated. But the deal's on. What do you mean? Well, he must have known too much. He's been murdered. Well, that's the beginning of a case out of my crime gallery called Fortune and Furs. I'll tell you the rest of the story in a minute. Rogue's Gallery is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. During the holiday season, we like to give the staff here in the Lava Lamp Lounge some much-needed time off. And with only 19 shopping days left until the big day later this month, we would like to offer this simple reminder in lieu of the usual nonsense we often provide. Shop local. Your chosen family is more important than anything else. Don't scrimp on the sides, pies, or extra LPs, and let Sheena's Jungle Room be your guide through the darkest days to something we can all enjoy in the following year. From all of us here at Dime Store Radio Theater, Sappy Hollandaise. And now, let's return you to Rogue's Gallery here on Sheena's Jungle Room and Dime Store Radio Theater. And now back to Dick Powell as private investigator Richard Rogue in Rogue's Gallery. Well, as I was saying, I, uh, I was as broke as a New Year's resolution when I ran across proof that the Matthews Fur Company warehouse fire was arson. I called Louis Flynn, who headed up the Fidelity Fire Insurance Company, and made a deal with him for ten grand if I could prove that the fire was of incendiary origin. And while I was talking with him, George Grant, my witness, was killed leaving the building. Well, I couldn't afford to lose a $10,000 fee right then, so I took a fast distance to the home of the late George Grant. I knocked at the door. What do you want? I want to talk with you. You're George Grant's daughter? Yes. You're the police? Uh, yes. Come in. Thank you. I suppose you want to question me about my father's affairs. Yes, that's right. Come in here, please. I can't believe that Dad is dead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Believe me. And if you'll help me, I'm sure we can find the people who murdered him. Sit down, please. Thank you. Oh, uh, Miss Grant, uh, what was your father's business? Oh, don't you know? He was warehouse manager for the Matthews Fair Company. He had been for years. Oh? Did he have any enemies that you know of? No. Dad wasn't the kind of a man who made enemies. He was... Well, he was sweet. Oh, I don't know. There'd been something wrong with him for the last couple of weeks. He wasn't himself. He was worried. And it was all that blonde's fault. Blonde? Yes. Denise Maxwell. Dad came involved with her. 
And he was spending too much money on her. Much too much money. Oh, uh, how long ago did he meet this, uh, Miss Maxwell? Oh, about a month ago, I guess. She deliberately chased him. She must have had some reason for it. Dad was no great catch. He... He was just a little guy working for a salary, trying to get along. Well, you say he's been acting strangely. In what way? Could you break that down a little bit for me? Well, I'll try. You see, for a while he was talking about how he was going to have a lot of money. All of a sudden, he was happy and carefree then. He was gone from home quite a bit. One night he had a meeting here with some rough-looking men. He wouldn't tell me who they were. Yeah, go on. Then after the warehouse fire... He was depressed. And he... He talked about... He talked about killing himself. I knew he was in some awful trouble, but... He wouldn't talk with me about it. He just kept calling my niece Maxwell. She wouldn't answer the phone, even. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, did your father talk with you much about the fire? No. Hmm. But I'm sure that that fire had something to do with his... It's murder. I know it did. That Maxwell woman has something to do with it, too. Who do you suppose that is? I think I know. Please don't go away. I don't want to talk to anybody else. If you stay here, maybe maybe they'll leave. This the residence of George Grant? Yes. Who are you? Lieutenant Irvin, Homicide Squad. Oh. Won't you come in? Uh, hello, Evan. Rogue, what are you doing here? Isn't he a policeman? No. What are you doing here, Rogue? I'm working on a case. Do you know anything about a murder that took place outside your office an hour ago? A little bit. I see. What are you doing out here? Well, I'm working for a client. I've got a license to do that. You want to see it? If he isn't a policeman, who is he? He's a private investigator, which is a Harvard version of a gumshoe. His name is Rogue. Richard Rogue. It is? Well, he told me he was a policeman. I, I, I wouldn't have let him in. Well, that's not very gracious of you, Miss Grant. Shut up. Miss Grant, did you give this man any information which you should have withheld for the police? Well, I don't know. He, he kept asking me questions about... about my fault. I answered them. What do you know about a murder? That murder, Rogue? Who did it? I don't know. How did you get out here so fast? How did you know who the murdered man was? I don't have to answer that. Well, he's been up to your office to see you, hadn't he? Daddy? Miss Grant, do you know whether or not your father planned on seeing a private investigator today? Well, I don't know. He didn't tell me if he did. I'm getting a little fed up with your ethics, Rogue. Aren't you getting a little out of line, Irvin? You're withholding information. Can you prove it? This man was shot on his way out of your office. What was he talking to you about? Answer me. Did you see him talking to me? Oh, now let's not get technical. Let's do, let's do. You're going to take me down to the station and sweat me? Not if you'll be reasonable. I'm not going to be reasonable. So either pull out your cups or shut up. Oh, please. Oh, I'm I'm sorry, Miss Grant. Believe me, I, I really want to help you. I'm going to take care of the people who are responsible for this murder. Even the cops can't keep you from doing that. Now, wait a minute, Rogue. I'm walking out of here, Urban. I'll see you later. When I deliver the killers to you so you can take a bow for the newspapers. Oh, I was burned like a bride's biscuits and feeling just as tough when I walked out of that house and passed Urban's squad car to my coupe. It didn't do my atomic temper any good when a pasty-faced gunman got out of the front seat of my car and pointed a pistol at me. Hello, Rogue. Get in. We're going places. Huh? Oh, 
Oh, okay, Junior. But be careful of that thing. It might go off. Where to, Junior? Straight down the street. I'll tell you when it turned. You, uh, you had a visitor at your office this morning. How much talking did he do? Oh, you mean George Grant? You know who I mean. Well, he didn't talk much. Why? Who wants to know? The boss. Hey, hey, look out where you're going, Road. Well, I'm not worried. I've got the wheel. Let's get this thing out of low, shall we? What are you trying to do, Rogue? Kill yourself? No, it makes me feel safer going this fast. Because you pull the trigger on that heater and you're just as dead as I am. Slow down, Rogue. Hey, hey, that guy almost crashed us. What's the matter, Billy Boy? You yellow? I've got a tank full of gas and this car will make over a hundred. You're going to kill us both. That's possible. As a matter of fact, it's probable. But you were going to take me for a ride anyway, weren't you? I got nothing to lose. Give me that gun. Hey, keep your hands on the wheel, Rogue. Hey, hey. Give Cut it, it off. Give me that gun, punk. Come on. Get your hands on the wheel, Rogue. You're going to crash. Give me that gun or I'll rip right into that wall ahead of us. You know me, kid. I mean it. Now, give me that gun. Would you let me go? No. Give it here. Oh, oh. Hey. Hey. Well, I'll be. He's passed out. Hey. Hey. Reasoned bleedings from everyone here at Dime Store Radio Theater and Sheena's Jungle Room. In the struggle for the gun, I twisted this torpedo's hand around and... Well, he pulled the trigger himself, with me a contributing factor. He shot himself through the chest, but it didn't look fatal to me. So I drove him to a hospital and left him there. Told them to call Urban. I used the hospital phone to check up on Bernice Maxwell. And found that she was a sort of a notorious babe. Ran an escort service. Which was legitimate enough, but she's had a few sidelines, such as uh, blackmail. I got her home address out of the book and went out there. She lived in a nice enough house out on the east side of town. I rang the doorbell. Yes? Hello, Miss Maxwell. I'd like to talk to you for a moment, please. Who are you? Uh, let's talk about that inside, shall we? What do you mean, forcing your way in here? I mean business, Blondie. And that's what we're going to talk Now, let's go in the other room and have a chat. You just lead the way. After all, you are the hostess. If you don't get out of here, I'm going to call the police. Don't bother, baby. I'm the police. And I want to talk to you about a fire and a murder. So just get moving. Come on. A murder? Yes, yes, a murder. Doesn't the fire surprise you, too? Sit down. I don't know what you're talking about. Who are you, anyway? That's beside the point. I want to know what you had to do with the murder of George Grant. You can talk now or later. I've got nothing but time. George Grant? He's dead? Yes, very. He was murdered about five minutes after four downtown on Grand Avenue. And I think you know who did it. I don't. I don't know anything about it. You never heard of him, huh? I knew him slightly. Oh, now, please, Miss Maxwell. You knew him better than slightly. You've been running around with him or giving him the runaround for the last month. You deliberately set a trap for him, didn't you? You mixed him up in that arson job on the Matthews Fur Company's warehouse. I don't know anything about arson. You can't come in here and threaten oh, me. Oh, look, lady, I'm not going to be polite about this. George Grant has been murdered. You had a hand in that murder, and I'm going to get the information out of you if I have to beat it out of you. And if you think I'm bluffing, just keep on dumbing up. Now, 
Who was mixed up on that arson job that Grant was killed for knowing too much about? Look, I'm going to count three. Then I'm going to come over there and slap the information out of you. Look. Look. If I tell you what you want to know, will you fix it with the district attorney to let me turn state's evidence? It depends on how good your information is. You have nothing on me. Now, don't start that again. You almost had your mind made up to be smart. Don't double-cross yourself. Now, come on. Talk. I have everything you need right here in this desk. Well, now you're talking. Now, uh, wise guy, get your hands up. Huh? Oh, no kidding. Now, look, Maxwell. This is nothing you can shoot your way out of, especially with a toy gun like that. Sit down. No. If I'm going to be shot, I want to be standing up when I get it. This is a silly piece of grandstanding, Bobby. I'm going to take that gun away from you before you nerve yourself into pulling the trigger. Don't. Don't come another step. I'm telling you, if you do, I'll shoot. Now, you don't think one bullet from that little twenty-five is going to stop me, do you? It won't, Maxwell. I'll just keep right on coming, and I'll take it away from you. And I'll put you in the pen for the rest of your life for attempted murder. I'll be there anyway if I don't get rid of you. I'll, don't I'll... be a sucker now. Think of those 13 steps to the death house. I'm coming after that gun, Maxwell. You take one more step. Uh, well, I hated to slap that gun out of your hand, Blondie, but you didn't want to shoot me anyway, did you? Let go of my arm. You're hurting me. Now talk. Who's behind that arson deal? Who was the touch-off man? Who was the brain? I can't tell you. I can't. If I don't, they'll kill me. Come on. Come on. I haven't much sympathy for dames like you. You killed George Grant just as much as if you pulled the trigger on him. Now talk, baby. Talk, do you hear? Hey. Hey. Hey, Blondie, come out of it. Come on. Well, well, I'm a son of a gun. She passed out on me. Hey, Maxwell, come out of it now, will you? Come on. All right, Rogue. Just stay right where you are. Huh? What did you do to Bernice? Well, nothing. I Did she talk? No, no, she didn't. It's good. How did you get here, Rogue? Well, I, I drove. I... Oh, I, uh, I got rid of that little pasty puss gunman you sent after me. Where is he? He's been taken care of. That's funny. That's exactly what's going to happen to you, Richard. Stand still while I get this gun out of that shoulder holster. Okay, okay, you're in the driver's seat. You just couldn't ever learn to stay out of trouble, could you? Trouble's my business, Bob. Get up and keep your hands in the air. Oh, sure, sure. Well, if you're going to let me have it, this is as good a time as any, isn't it? Time's all right. But I don't like the place, that's all. I'm going to take you out in the country. Uh, that's nice to think about. I love the country. You know I'm going to have to kill you, don't you? You know too much. Sure, sure. You couldn't stand a police investigation, could you, Bob? No. You know, you, uh, you should have covered me yourself when I left the Grant house. <laughs> you should never send a boy to do a man's work. No. Now, you're yellow too, aren't you? You haven't got the guts to pull a trigger yourself. You've got a lot of nerve talking that way when you're looking down the barrel of this gun, Richard. Yeah, you're a two-for-a-nickel-penny-added-ten-horn, Frenchie. And I'm going to take that gun away from you and make you eat it. Yes. Well, I have plans for you, Richard. I'm going to bend this gun over your head first, and then I'm going to get rid of you. For good. You haven't got the guts. No. Turn around, Rogue. Well, I... I wasn't as batty as I sounded there, believe me. I'm... I'm no hero, and 
And usually when a guy has the drop on me, I, I obey orders like a corporal bucking for sergeant. But I didn't have much to lose, and... And for once, I wanted to be hit over the head. Oh, I got my wish and rolled with a blow. Those old familiar stars started to circulate around my indestructible cranium, and and I started to black out. But I pulled myself back and hung on to consciousness. I didn't move after I fell. I, I didn't have to. You see, I, I fell with my left shoulder in the shadows, covering the automatic I'd slapped out of Bernice Maxwell's hand a little earlier. When I heard this character walk away from me, I I got my right hand on the gun. He went over to where Bernice was, just coming around to this world again. I could hear him talking to her. Bernice. Bernice. Will Waverly. Oh, it's you, Marcel. Where's he? Hogue. He's on ice over there in the corner. You kill him? No, but I'm going to. I didn't want to do it here on your house. Drop that gun, Marcel. I'm taking over from here. What? Drop it! Marcel, he's over there by the piano! We'll return to Richard Rogue in just a moment. Twas the night before Sheena's, and all through the jungle room. All the DJs were stirring, making their cocktails go kaboom. The LP bags were hung by the chimney with care, in the hopes that Mr. Fab soon would be there. The crew were all lit, decked out in their best threads, with a band keeping beat on those boss new drumheads. Shangri-La's got a kooky sweater and Barno's sporting a hat, while Jan Turkenberg has the dance moves down pat. When out on the turntables, Chris O. spun a platter. We all sprung to our feet and danced like mad hatters. Then in through the door with a significant flash, flew in Don Bowles with a huge LP stash. Rich in Washington added another hour to his show with a holiday double feature programmed by Don O. When, what to our Hepcat eyeballs should appear? But an overdressed Mr. Fab with all the other DJs, never fear. On the dance floor, he was so lively and quick, as we all grooved and frugged to surf songs so slick. It seemed like the tunes all had obscure fame, yet every single one of us knew them all by name. Everybody brought food, there were plenty of fixins, and when it came to drinks, we were all nearly six in, to the top of the porch, and all through the halls, our DJs were always heard by one and all. Alex Kish and Julie, with Mike Rogers himself. I see Space Brother flipping through records on that shelf. Jamie Jazz and Catherine Sage, both shaking their heads at the terrible pun that I, for some reason, just said. Hysterica just got here, but they seem to fit right in. And we're laughing at the choices by DJ Kratoven. Georgie Girl is the peak of fashion and style. And Derek showed up with another record pile. John Nelson and Mark Time are both learning to twerk, while Miss May and Flannery chat in the kitchen and lurk. Sarcophagi and Daryl both like to pose, while Speedo and John P. trade DJ tips like old pros. DJ Babs and M.H. Lee both began to whistle. And you know we all got the It's All Night epistle. 
we heard Mr. Fab exclaim, quite loud and quite bright. This year, we danced to Sheena's all day and all night. From everyone here in the Mid Valley, those stationed in the Lava Lamp Lounge itself, the production crew here at Dime Store Radio Theatre and Mid Valley Mutations, and all the volunteers at Sheena's Jungle Room, we wish you a sappy holidays and plenty of new music throughout the coming year. Now, time to get my freak on. Latest skaters. Turn to Rogue's Gallery with Dick Powell as private investigator Richard Rogue. I was a little worried about my future as I stood there behind the cover of that piano and pumped lead at myself. But if I could get in a lucky shot, I, I knew I could put him away for the murder of George Grant and the arson job at the Matthews Fur Company warehouse. I'd hit him a couple of times, and this girl, Bernice Maxwell, was screaming at me to stop. But my cell kept on trying to luck a shot into my anatomy. Don't move. Don't move. Either one of you. I still got plenty of blood here to stop you if you do. What are you going to do with us? I'm going to turn you both over to the cops, baby. Wow. Now, this guy will live to hang. Now, here. Here, tie him up. Use his necktie. Come on. He needs a doctor. Well, I'll call one as soon as he's secured. Come on, tie him tight now. He's bleeding to death. Shut up. Here now. Take my tie. Here, tie feet tight. You're really tough, aren't you, Rogue? Uh, well, I'm mad, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Here's my gun, and here's the gun that's going to send your boyfriend to the chair. Uh, you want to go with him, or do you want to tell me all about it? You mean I can still turn state's evidence? Were you mixed up in the murder? No. I don't know anything about that. You know about the arson deal, though, huh? Yes. Okay, baby. Now, start talking. And maybe I can get you a deal with the DA. I'll talk. I'll tell. I'll tell you everything. Well, she sang. Yeah, she sang plenty. And the words were music to my ears. When she was through singing, I tied her up tight and called Homicide to tell Urban where he could pick up a murderer and an accessory before the fact. Then I told him where I'd be later. I called Flynn at the Fidelity Fire Insurance Company and told him to meet me at the home of Paul Matthews, owner of the Matthews Fur Company, in ten minutes. He did, and we went in together. The butler sort of unwillingly showed us into the study where Matthews was reading. I'm Richard Rogue, Mr. Matthews. The investigator? The celebrated investigator, Mr. Matthews. This gentleman with me here is Mr. Flynn of the Fidelity Fire Insurance Company. How do you do? Well, I'm 
puzzled as to the purpose of your visit, gentlemen. Well, I'll unpuzzle you, Matthews. The fire at your fur warehouse was deliberate arson. Oh? Why, why that's preposterous. It's a nice act, but no go. We're not paying the claim, Matthews. We have absolute evidence now, that... Let me tell you, Flynn. You made a deal with Marcel Jarnac, one of the West's leading arsonists, to start that blaze, Matthews. But you needed the loyalty of an old employee of yours, the manager of your warehouse, George Grant. Grant was an honest guy. So you and Marcel seeked a dame on him, a dame named Bernice Maxwell. Ah, you convinced now that I know what I'm talking about? No. I tell you what... Okay, then I'll give you some more dope. With Grant's help, you took all of the expensive furs out of the warehouse and filled it up with a lot of junk. And then Grant sopped it all down to the gasoline and touched it off. So you want the insurance on $160,000 worth of minks and sables for burning $1,000 worth of cat skin. It was a swindle, Matthews. We're not paying the claim. The cops have the Maxwell woman, Marcel Jarnack, and the pasty-faced gunman who worked with them. They've all talked. You're through, Matthews. That's the police now, the homicide squad. Show the man, will you, Flynn? Sure. Looks like the end of the road for me, doesn't it, Mr. Rogue? Yeah, yeah, it sure does, Matthews. You know, amateurs like you shouldn't go around uh, mixing up with professional crooks. That's right. Hey, hey, cut it out. Drop that gun. Matthews, hey. Hey, what's going on in here, Rogue? Ah, this guy, this, this Matthews tried to commit suicide. I had to take the gun away from him. That's all I've been doing all day long. Is that living... Well, it was Pasty Puss's gun that bumped George Grant. He and Marcel got the chair. Matthews and Bernice Maxwell got ten years apiece, and I got ten grand reward money for cracking the case. <laughs> yeah, I really had a time with that $10,000. Went to Mexico. Mexico City, incidentally. Ah, las señoritas. Muy simpáticas. Spent the month of January there. What a month, January. So as soon as I get time, I'm going to write a book. You know what the title's going to be? I'm going to call it Lost January. <laughs> oh, dear. Incidentally, I hope you noticed that I didn't get my brains knocked out and make my regular visit to my alter enemy, Hugo, tonight. And... Huh? Huh? What's the idea, Rogie? I missed you. Are you mad because I threw that Betty Dame off our cloud? No, Hugo. Oh, but look, Rogie. You made a reservation. On cloud number eight? I did not. Oh, yes, you did. You said it. I said what? You said, see you next week, Hugo. You said it. I heard you. Okay, okay, I've seen you. Good night, Midget. Goodbye, Rogie. Say, Rogie, aren't you going to wish me a Merry Christmas? Oh, sure, sure. Merry Christmas, Hugo. Merry Christmas, Richard. So long. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> Imagine that little dehydrated Santa Claus. Oh, well, I love everybody. And God blesses one and all. To coin a phrase. You know what I mean? You have been listening to Dime Store Radio Theater on Sheena's Jungle Room. Brought to you by Mid-Valley Mutations. We hope to see you again next week. Until then, be seeing you.